Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. Do you fancy some bonus content with this episode? Then fear not. If you start to my Patreon today, by going on to www.patreon.com forward slash travel podcast, then you'll find these extra features every week for Monday and Friday's episode. One bonus episode every month, some ad-free content, some early access to episodes, the exclusive added travel must-have feature on every episode, patron shout-out, some ad hoc bonus episodes, you'll get a copy of my digital travel planner which is available on Etsy and you'll get my monthly Winging It Travel podcast magazine. If this takes your fancy, you can sign up for £4, $7.50 Canadian, $6 US a month and I really thank you for supporting the podcast. Hope you enjoy the podcast, thanks for listening and supporting this and I'll see you soon. Cheers James. Let's get into the episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode and this week I'm joined by writer and former diplomat Dave Seminara. I recently read Dave's latest book called Mad Travellers, A Tale of Wanderlust, Greed and the Quest to Reach the Ends of the Earth. And I was absolutely hooked on this book. So Dave is here today to talk about that book, his previous works, also some personal travel and maybe some articles he's written in the past, as well as where he's based at the minute. So Dave, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you, James. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Not too bad. Can you tell the listeners where you're based currently? Uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. For my European listeners who don't know where that is, that's kind of southeast of U.S.? Yes, it is. So uh, I'm along the uh, Gulf of Mexico, and uh, the nearest nearby big city is just on the other side of the bay. It's called Tampa, but the region is the Tampa Bay area of uh, Florida, and it's quite a beautiful place to be, but not at this time of year. So if you need need a beach holiday, uh, the time to come here is like October through May, not August as we're in right now. Oh, wow. Okay, that's good to know. I didn't even know that. Unless you're a cheapskate and want to come here in the hot and muggy <laughs> rainy season, where you'll get a much better deal. <laughs> yeah, cheapskate. So we'll come to that in a bit because I've got some questions about budget travel and stuff as well. Um, you just recently come back from Brazil. Yeah, I was. we actually, um, every summer we do a, I have two children and a, a wife. And every summer we take a big family trip to another part of, different part of the world, all four of us. And uh, this year we spent three and a half weeks in Brazil, uh, Argentina and Uruguay. And I actually just got back on Friday evening and today's what Tuesday. So I'm already still sort of in mourning when I come back from a big trip, especially a great one. Uh, it's always somewhat, I think traumatic is too, probably too strong a word, but it's the first one that jumps to mind. So yes, I'm still mourning the loss of a great trip that I just came back from. That's the holiday blues, right? That's what everyone, yes, uh, most people yes. suffer from that, right? I think. Yes, I think so. Most, no, most normal people. And then of course there's some, <laughs> other unusual people who don't like travel at all. And I profiled some of them in one chapter in my book called Travel Haters. So there are there are some of those weird people out there around, but I'm certainly not one of them. Yes, of that chapter, we're going to come to that in a bit. I've got some questions about, I put it into three categories. I think you might have done, I don't know if you did as well. The ones who hate it, the ones who do, do their vacation time every year, maybe not different places, but do go away. And then the people who love travel, and maybe the fourth crew is the people at the end who are extreme travelers. 
I was kind of heartbroken to read some of the people who hate travel. I, I, I didn't understand, mm -hmm. I couldn't comprehend it. Yeah, interestingly enough too, some of them are people who were, at least some of the ones that I met in profile, they're people who actually were exposed quite a bit to travel as children and too much for their liking. And it turned them off on it completely. Wow. I wanted to sort of study those people like as though, as though you'd study like a chimpanzee in a zoo because um, I didn't know anyone like that, but um, now I do. That's very interesting because obviously all the listeners right now are travel lovers, I'd right. imagine, at least love it to you know, different extents, but they were like, oh, there's people who hate travel. Yeah, yeah, that's yes. mental, yeah. Yes, I, I also found out too that there are some people who who maybe hate is too strong of a word, but I think that um, one of the travel haters put it to me, and I thought in a very sort of concise and intelligent way, she said that there are a lot of people who are either indifferent to travel or don't love it too much, but it's become such a marker of sophistication in society that to say publicly to other people, oh, I don't like travel at all. You sound like an ignoramus. So there are people who, who don't really, maybe hate is too strong a word, but who aren't really into travel, but are sort of afraid to admit it in polite company because you kind of sound like a, a boring dolt or sort of an ignoramus if you say you hate travel, don't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. I asked one of my good friends at home, I won't name him, and I said to him, oh, have you ever thought about maybe you know backpacking for six months or something like that? He goes, nah, I'll be bored of it. I'll be too bored. I'm like, what? Seeing something every day, you'd be bored. He goes, yeah, I wouldn't like it. I just couldn't get my head around it. You know, we're all very, very different, aren't we? When we yep. go to the ice cream, there's a reason why when we go to the ice cream parlor, there's like 30 different flavors for us to choose from. Absolutely. I always go chocolate. So there you go. Do you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting because then, then you're not on the extreme end of the novelty seeking spectrum, spectrum no. because... You know, there's creatures of habit who, who are extreme novelty seekers. And those are people who always want something different. Like they literally don't find any comfort in familiarity at all. And then there are people on the opposite end of that spectrum who are, who are neophobes. They're afraid of things that are new. And so they always have to have the same thing. They go to the restaurant and they have to have the same meal every time. And when they go on vacation, it has to be the exact same place every year. And they have to stay in the exact same hotel and recreate the exact same thing they did last summer. So, and then there's, <laughs> then there's some people who are sort of midway through the spectrum. And I, I explored uh, some of that in the book and I thought it was, it was interesting to learn about that and how we feel about novelty and new things versus familiarity in some way that is that colors and that that dictates how we feel about travel very very interesting because one first of all i'm very glad you went there as well because it's always easy to stick to positives of travel right but it's always always good to maybe go into the downsides or people don't like it so that's good to read that but also with food <laughs> yeah i have the opposite thinking of food now I do travel so travel i'll try new things do new things but food when i'm traveling i'll eat something different the local cuisine of course but like at home now i'm sticking to the same stuff that i like because <laughs> <laughs> i kind of contradict well, myself here but like yeah i, I know I, what i like yeah no I, I i agree with you on that i i'm i'm sort of in the same way as you however especially it, it it's not as much when i'm at home uh, at home it's dictated by what my wife decides to cook because she's the chef yeah. but when i'm at a restaurant especially if the prices are somewhat higher I'm sometimes just afraid to try something brand new because I'm such a cheapskate that I feel like, well, if I spend $15 on it and it tastes awful, then I'll still be hungry and I'll need to purchase something else later. So my frugality sometimes inter, you know, interferes with my desire to, to, to seek out novelty. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The ice cream analogy, if I spent $5 on a risque ice cream flavor and I taste and I hate it, I'll be devastated. So right. I wasted money, but I can't waste the food, so I'm going to have to finish it. Yes, I agree with you.
there you go <laughs> bit, bit of mindset there and one question about your trip before we crack on with a bit of personal history mm-hmm. you went to uruguay now this is a country that has kind of piqued my interest recently basically what's it like there what can you tell us about uruguay well i have to be honest i did not have the best experience in uruguay um i had we just had an amazing time in brazil and argentina okay and then mm-hmm. the, the or, sometimes the order with which you travel to countries can really dictate your 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 feeling about a place and in this case, Uruguay was at the end of the trip and it came after Argentina. And Argentina has just gone through this sort of historic period of hyperinflation and their currency has been in free fall. Yeah. So when we got to Argentina a few weeks ago, we were getting like 320 pesos to the dollar, whereas a month before it was only like 200. Wow. So Argentina is at the moment, if you have dollars or I imagine pounds or other hard currencies is extraordinarily cheap right now. And so you cross the Rio del Plata right on the other side of the river, and it's an entirely different ballgame. And so things were things that were extravagantly cheap in Argentina were actually quite expensive in Uruguay. It was shocking. I mean, you oh, wow. literally just take a ferry from one country to the other across the river. And, and you know, a taxi ride that's one dollar in Buenos Aires, you know, <laughs> is eight, eight or nine dollars in, you know, in Montevideo and Colonia and these places. And so First of all, in, in meals, everything, everything was just shockingly expensive. It was actually even a little more expensive than here in Florida. So that gave me, again, as a frugal traveler, that gave me a distinctly negative taste in my mouth immediately. Our first thought was, oh, no, can we please go back to Argentina? <laughs> Nothing against Uruguay at all. Lovely people, yeah. beautiful yeah. country. But the prices, especially when you're traveling, you're paying for a family, traveling around with two kids, you're paying for four of everything the costs were, were, were staggering. Wow. Yeah. I remember Argentina being cheap when I went there in 2014 because of the peso. Um, uh-huh. just the, the, they're saying the class, you can make money Argentina, you can take a thousand dollars, get it changed and change over again and mm-hmm. make some money. But wow. Yeah. I know Argentina have kind of struggled the last decade of, of that sort yep. of stuff, but Uruguay, yeah, you don't hear too much about. So it's a good, good slip no, into that country. I just, just, was just writing about Argentina today. So I could tell you they're, they're running 64% inflation rate right now this year so far. Bloody hell. And it's forecast to go up to 90% by the end of the year. And the, the peso literally lost 25% of its value in a period of three weeks uh, between mid-June and, and mid-July. For frugal travelers out there listening, I don't know when you're posting this. This is a wonderful time to travel to Argentina. And I, I hate to say it, if there's any Uruguayans listening, sorry. But you know, if you're choosing between Argentina and Uruguay, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't, don't, go to, don't go to Uruguay right now unless you're Elon Musk. Who actually owns a house there? Elon Musk doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah, bloody hell! Yeah, Argentina is that because they refuse to pay their debt? The default because they I know like ten years ago when I was there they talked about Argentina were going to refuse to pay their debts and just write it off themselves, which gave them a bad credit well, rating abroad. In in Argentina's history, as I understand it, they've defaulted on their debt nine times before. Okay, so uh, this is something they've done sort of habitually. So yeah. they've already got they already sort of had that reputation. Um, <laughs> They've also had, you know, many decades of mismanagement and poor leadership uh, on both sides of the, the spectrum there, um, the left and the right. So I think there's a lot of different factors involved there. The catalyst that happened right before we left there was that the, they had sort of a centrist, moderate um, minister of the economy who up and quit. And then the president um, named a replacement and then fired her like two weeks later. So just a complete period of chaos there. They had a very difficult time during the pandemic, very long and strict and harsh lockdowns, one of the longest ones in the world, more than six months. And yet they still suffered very badly. A lot of people still died. 
Um, many, many businesses went out of business there. So a lot of, you know, we would need a couple of hours probably to diagnose mm. all of Argentina's economic problems. But <laughs> for the purposes of travel, go ahead and yeah. travel there right, right now if you've got money. Go do it. <laughs> I've heard someone else say, like, someone like Sri Lanka is, is a now time, right? Because they're struggling as well. Um, right. The tourists are right. safe there. But yeah, Argentina is a, a new one that I've heard. Okay. I'll put that yeah. in the bank. Yeah. Let's go to a bit of personal history. Where, where, where did you grow up in the US? In Buffalo, which is in western New York State, um, about 400 miles. I guess that's seven, 700 kilometers, something like that, north and west of New York City. Um, very close to the Canadian border, about 15, 20 minutes from Ontario. Mm-hmm. Is that near Niagara Falls? Yes, it is near Niagara Falls, and it's yeah. uh, famous for... Two things, the Buffalo Bills football club, our, yeah. our version of football, American football, and also the invention of Buffalo chicken wings. Ah, uh, okay. Of course, yeah. That's what we're known for. We're also known for prolific amounts of snowfall every winter. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Because I went to Niagara Falls on the Canada side, and you can get a bridge across, right, to Buffalo. That is yep. an option. Okay, and you were in the U.S. Foreign Service yep. um, after university. How was that? What was that like as a career? It was extremely interesting. I did that for about six years. I was posted to... Um, Trinidad. I lived in Port of Spain. Uh, I lived in uh, Skopje, Macedonia, right after a civil conflict there in 2001. And um, I lived in Budapest for a year. And then I also worked in Washington, D.C. as the desk officer for two very calm and peaceful democratic countries called Chad and the Central African Republic. I'm being a little sarcastic. (laughs) Probably two of the countries that have had the most coups, um, I think, of any other in the world. And I was responsible for both of them for a period of about a year and a half or so. Wow. Okay. And I guess many, many coup attempts while I was there. Yeah. And I guess you saw a lot of stuff and heard a lot of stuff that maybe obviously you can't tell many people the premise of your job or were you not that sort of secret service? Type I was, I, no, I, I wasn't in the CIA yeah. um, or I wasn't secret service, anything like that. So, but yeah, there, you do have access to classified information and stuff like that, but no, I mean, I could probably tell you about things. <laughs> I, could tell you, <laughs> I could tell you a few things, but you know, it's all ancient history by now. That was back in 2000 and, 2006 so everything that was happening now then is uh you know similar problems now but different characters and stuff like that it feels like a different world now since those days yeah okay yeah okay and then you obviously got into writing articles and writing books so where did the writing and travel come into i guess the travel would have been with your job right but also personally come into it what i learned as an expatriate moving around from country to country for several years there was that I think I wrote this in the book in the book Mad Travelers, my last one. But I'm I learned that I'm really more of a um, traveler than an expatriate, and I thought that they were probably pretty much the same two things, but they really aren't. That I learned they're really sort of two different skill sets, and they do overlap for some people. There are a lot of expats who are also you know world travelers, but then there's also expats who don't like travel, and then there's people who love travel but don't actually like living in other countries. And I found out that I am the sort of person who really prefers just to travel extensively as opposed to living in various countries and just moving from one to the next every few years. Because I found that, you know, in the foreign service, you spend two to four years in each city. And I, I found that as someone who has very itchy feet too long, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> even, even for even for places that I liked, I really liked Budapest very much. After one year, that was enough. I've had enough of that, ready to move on. Um, and so I do also like the familiarity of coming back home and speaking my own language for a period of time and catching up with friends and sort of, I do like having a home base and I like that home base being here somewhere in the United States, but ideally really my ideal balance for travel and, and, and home life is, is about one-to-one. 
So if I really had my way and I had as much money as I needed, I would spend probably six months traveling and six months at home every year. Yep, same as me. That's my that's my divide. Six and six. Um, probably follow, following the sun. If I, if I was honest, um, yep. yeah, I'm not too not too fan of the cold. Um, right. So my yeah. weather here in Florida is perfect from May to October. So those especially would be, you know, those would be the months I'd be choosing from to be here. And then I'd be gone in the summertime. Got it. Okay. You made a good point there, actually. That maybe thought COVID period. Let's not talk too much about COVID because we, we've all heard it. But what I learned yes. in COVID is because we're in Canada at the time, me and my partner, I don't think we're planning to stay this long, if, if we're honest. Because of COVID and because what can you do if, you, if you're traveling, you can't travel where well, you've got to stay home, haven't you? So we decided to extend and stay here on permanent residency. But what I learned myself is that up to that point, I was in Australia for a year and left, New Zealand a year, left, UK for a year, left. I think you're right. More than a year, I'm, I'm getting itchy feet. I need to go and do something else. I kind of learned that about myself this year, I think. Yeah. Um, everyone is, you know, everyone's completely different. It actually surprised me because the reason why I wanted to join the Foreign Service is because I thought that, well, here's a legitimate way to earn a paycheck while still indulging my wanderlust. But I found out that I couldn't really fully indulge my wanderlust actually that well in the Foreign Service because you still only get X amount of vacation time. And I was quite busy with my job. So what it does do is living in other countries, it puts new places on your radar that wouldn't have been there before. Mm. And it allows you to afford to be able to fly to places that are closer now than they were before. Like, so for example, you know, when I was living in Trinidad, you've got a whole orbit of places in the Caribbean there and in South America that are much cheaper and easier to get to than if you were living in, say, Vancouver or wherever. It still, it wasn't as great at, for indulging wanderlust as I thought it would be, to be honest. And I was very surprised. I also thought that everyone else in the Foreign Service would be stricken with wanderlust like me. And I found out that was actually not the case. There were actually people who don't like travel at all in the Foreign Service and who were just in there because they wanted a secure government job and a you know, pension and a secure paycheck and such. And I was shocked to sometimes be surrounded by people that would be, you know, would be, for example, when we uh, when I lived in Macedonia for two years, we were uh, about three hours away from Thessaloniki, a great city in northern uh, Greece, which has a wonderful food culture. And we had people at the embassy who on a Friday night when they go down to Thessaloniki for the weekend would be seeking out um, TGI Fridays and Bennigan's which oh, for wow. our non-American for our non-American viewers. I will just say explain those are those are very sort of. <laughs> <laughs> poor quality American chain restaurants that you find in shopping malls and such. Yeah. But because they had them in Thessaloniki, there were people at the embassy who sought those out as a sort of, you know, sort of comfort food. And and so I was surprised that there were people like that who actually uh, did weren't that interested in other cultures at all or other countries. They were mm. just there for the job. Yeah, good point. I don't know if people agree with this, but I found this year a secure job, Monday to Friday, wage, pension, all that. For me doesn't enable you to see as much of the world as you think you do. You get, as you say, limited amount of time. Now that could be enough for some people, but I've again, personally learned that I was figuring out like, what is the, how can I do travel as much as I can, but also make a living so I can do it. Unless you've got some sort of business where it can be remote. You don't need to be anywhere specifically. You can be somewhere with Wi-Fi. basically. You can do it on the laptop and there's no constraints to a place. Then yeah, that's possible, right? But most people have a job in the location they're at and they have to go to the office you know, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, one or two days a week, but they still are tied to that location. So you're not really free. I mean, I've been trying to figure out what can I do to enable my my wanderlust really, because it's a tough question. If you, if you figure it out, James, let me know. Too, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I shouldn't date myself like this, but I'm turning 50 in November and I still have yet to completely solve that riddle, although I'm still working on it. But you must have interviewed a lot of people, which we'll come to in the book. I get asked all the time, like, well, how do they travel for 
one year like how do they travel two years like you must have right. asked them questions like that right how is it possible oh yes so i've interviewed many 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 prolific travelers over the years not just for my book mad travelers but also for a series i used to do for bbc travel called travel pioneers so I've traveled, I, you know, I've interviewed people who are backpacker sorts, who sleep in train stations and who travel with, have seen the world with very, very little money. So as soon as people tell me that it's impossible to travel the world unless you're rich, I tell them that's complete garbage because mm -hmm. I know people who have done so with very little money. I will say that it is difficult to travel the world comfortably <laughs> and <laughs> yes. have a roof over your head and have air conditioning <laughs> and have a television set and things like that with very little money. But you can, if you, if you are, if you're tough and you don't mind a little suffering, mm -hmm. you definitely can travel the world with very little money, but there's always sacrifices that have to be made in order yeah. to do such things. And uh, that's something that very few prolific travelers are really very honest about, to be honest with you. I did explore oh. this quite a bit in my book. Mm -hmm. I have one chapter, for example, about the significant others of important travelers and big yes. travelers and such. And um, there's always something that is sacrificed. If, if, if you have a quest to see every country in the world, like the main characters from my book, and not just every country in the world, but also all of these islands and very remote and difficult to get places, there's always going to be sacrifices that have to be made. And oftentimes the most common one there is interpersonal relationships suffer. And many of the world's best travelers are people who have had difficulty finding uh, a stable uh, partner yeah. Um, who is willing to sort of indulge that habit. Um, many people also suffer financially in terms of spending all of their money on travel. <laughs> and then uh, they do not have any money to retire. And then there's others who are simply independently wealthy and have saved up enough during their career and have retired early or whatever and have been able to do it. So people, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with this. Would you would you relate that to maybe something like a sports person? Do you like tennis, right? Like something like Roger Federer or... Yep. Or Tiger Woods, these are you know these elite sports people. They've all made sacrifices that we don't see. And oh, absolutely, you can't say, yeah, I want to be as good as Roger Federer because one, have you got the talent? But also two, have you got the sacrifice and hard work? Like people don't understand what goes into him being where he is now. Like for yourself, like it could be like yeah, not seeing anyone when he was growing up for fifteen years, like until he got onto the tour, right? I don't know, but right. like, must be. Pretty I think the, the difference between Roger Federer, who thanks for mentioning him too, by the way, since I wrote a book about yeah. him. <laughs> Uh, footsteps of Federer. I'll throw that plug in there. I'm yeah, we'll come to that later, that actually. Yeah, I'm intrigued. But, um, so the difference, though, between people like him and prolific travelers is the nice thing about travel is, in theory, anybody could really do it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. not anybody could become a great tennis player. Mm. You've got to be part of it is hard work, but then part of it is also having a, sort of an innate talent and ability. And this is, I think, one of the great things about travel is you don't necessarily, no one is born with the sort of talent to be a great traveler. I think that certain people's personality sort of leads itself to becoming a better traveler or being good at travel or enjoying travel. But I don't think it's, it's not like necessarily a talent. I think it is a skill being a good traveler, but it's a skill that you can hone over the course of your lifetime with a lot of practice. So you don't have to have any special ability to really do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. I asked my girlfriend the other day about uh, football or soccer, should I say, and tennis players, the ones that are like mid-level, not top, not like top 10, 20, 30, who could maybe win a title, but the ones that are just below in that, like, I don't know, 75 to 50 category or 75 to 30 rankings, like in theory, they could get to the top, but never really going to make it like, that's weird because they, they are good at their sport, but like nowhere near the top, but it's a living, right? right? That's a lot of sacrifice to be like nowhere near the top. I don't know. It's quite an interesting thought maybe of sports people who don't get to the top of their profession. Mm-hmm mentality like someone 
who's an extreme traveler, they probably want to literally go to every region in the world. Like that is their, their aim, right? It's quite a different mentality. Yes, it is. It is. No, I mean, and that can be competitive too, as I sort of explored in more <clears throat> mad travelers is some of the extreme travelers are quite competitive. Um, a lot of them don't want to admit it. <laughs> some of them are very, very honest about admitting it, but yes, yeah, some of them are quite competitive and there are rankings in some of the big travel clubs. And so this is, this is something that people do want to move up in the rankings. And they do want to be able to say that, you know, I've seen 98% of the world's regions and such. Okay. And in that, in that group of people, would you say just traveling to a country, whether that's one day or whatever, every country in the world, is that like not even enough to get into that group? Is that like, you have to go even further to go to like regions and certain no. places that even qualify? Yeah. So two of the major travel clubs, most traveled people in Nomad Mania, in order to get to the very top of those lists, when you say top, you mean top 10, top 20, top 50, and that I'm range? Top 50, yeah, I was thinking. Top 50, yeah. I mean, seeing every country would be a starting point for that. Yeah. So there's there, there's only, it's been estimated that something like three or 400 people in the world have actually been to every country. Oh, wow. Now, okay. There, there may be more than that of people who just have never announced themselves to the world and have just quietly seen every country and have never joined any of these travel clubs or, you know written a book or have a mm. YouTube channel or whatever, but that we know of there's three, 400 of these people in the world who have visited every country. And so, but then if you want to be like top 20 or top 50, that's when these travel clubs really start to get down into the granular level of, okay, you've been to every country, but how many of the 50 U S states have you been to, you know, how many of the provinces of Brazil have you visited in the oblasts in Germany? And I'm sorry, the oblasts in Russia and so on and so forth in the islands. And so, and, and, and so that's where it really gets into the real, nitty-gritty of things wow completely different culture isn't it it is and and like would you even count it if you were to step into it for like half an hour is that like ticked off the list like is there yeah. like that granular in terms of rules yeah so i mean the different travel clubs sort of have different standards for this but in in honor you know it's generally sort of an honor system in terms of visiting okay. a country there are a few basic rules that most of them adhere to and I would say the one sort of basic one is that if it's a country that has any sort of border control, um, you are supposed to have been admitted into the country. So mm. by that, I mean that if you are just at the airport in a transit lounge or something like that, certainly does not count at all. Um, or if you were there and they did not let you in, that's not supposed to count. So um, there is no hard and fast rule for you have to spend X amount of days or hours or weeks or anything like that. It is mostly an honor system, although... If you get to the very top and you're trying to claim all just out of the blue, if you just go on to Nomad Mania today and claim that you've been to every damn place in the world, uh, they are not going to believe you because all these travelers, you know, they know each other, the very top yeah. people, and they've seen each other in these weird exotic places. And they do have what are called verifiers. So if you are claiming to have been everywhere, they are going to ask you to verify your status. And you're not going to have to verify every country you've been to, but they're going to pick like, let's say 10 countries at random. And they're going to say, okay, uh, show me your photos from Liechtenstein or, you know, whatever, something like that. <laughs> if, and if you're, and if you're a fraud, they'll kick you off of the site. So okay. that's pretty much how it works. And I will say though, that, um, you know, when I came into this project before I knew many of the extreme travelers, I did have sort of a suspicion about them thinking, ah, I bet most of these people are just, going to a country for they're going to the capital city for one day yeah they plunk down and then they immediately leave they don't learn anything about the place and you know i cannot say that there are not people like that who exist there are people like that who who, who are that way very shallow sort of travelers but i would say when you get to the very top people 
that is very rare. That is very unusual. And I think that um, once you actually get to know these people, as I did over the course of five or six years in researching Mad Travelers, I found most of these uh, guys, and I have to say guys because they were all men who were, who were involved at the very top levels of these clubs. Um, I found them to be almost all of them quite impressive and quite knowledgeable. Okay. Yeah. And they, they have a genuine, you really, I think, have to have a very genuine curiosity about the world in order to really want to do this, to get to the very top of these uh, clubs. Because um, let's face it, when you get, when you whittle the list down, when you look at the list of countries and provinces and islands and all this, most of these places are not places you want to go on vacation to. And many of them are places that are very difficult and arduous to get to. So you've got to endure getting seasick and being, staying in awful hotels. And these are not holidays. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you're really sort of just a dilettante who wants to be able to say you've been everywhere, you're not going to spend five, six days on a boat, um, on a treacherous little boat going to Marion Island, where there's very little to see even once you get there. You really sort of, you've got to be really hardcore. You've got to, you've got to be at the extreme end of the, um, at the curiosity spectrum. So I, I talk about a couple of different things that propel travel, propel wanderlust in the book. And, you know, I get into several of the factors, but two of them, I think are the most important are curiosity and novelty seeking. We talked about novelty seeking before curiosity. Everyone knows what curiosity means, but again, all of us are different on the curiosity spectrum and how we indulge our curiosity. So some people can are very, have a high degree of curiosity, but they're able to indulge their curiosity by say reading books or watching a film on YouTube. So, you know, there's someone who might be curious about Suriname, but they might be the sort of person who could just go onto YouTube, watch a two minute video about Suriname and think, Oh, okay. And now I'm satisfied. I've satisfied my curiosity. There's other people who need to go to Suriname and to meet people from Suriname and so on and so forth. And so many of these folks are on the hyper curious end of the spectrum. And I think I am hyper curious as well, too. Yeah. And so that's one of the one of the things that propels their wanderlust. Yeah, very interesting. So I interviewed my last two episodes, someone called Frank, who's from Canada, French Canadian. And he's hitchhiking places like Afghanistan, Pakistan. Yeah, I noticed that. I in, Af in Africa, I'm like, that. in terms of uh, country travel, like he's nowhere near, right? In terms, you know, he's traveled less than me in terms of country numbers. But the type of travel, he must be going to the echelons of extreme travel because like he, he's going to be gone for nearly a year. And he said, I was supposed to go for three months or six months, but he's hitchhiking. So very budget. But like that type of travel must be quite extreme for a lot of people and even maybe even people in those groups i don't know right i actually just downloaded that episode but i didn't have time to listen to it yet because that really piqued my interest but I, I with i don't want to judge him not having listened to the episode yet or met him but i will say a couple of other categories of travelers that um that i have profiled and met over the years too that would fall into the category of people wanting to hitchhike in afghanistan would also be um you know another major thing that propels wanderlust is 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 escape being an escape artist and like looking to escape right and to escape reality to escape um and again i'm not speaking to him particularly but there are a lot of people and i've been one of them at different times in my <laughs> life where you're traveling as a means of escape because at home you're facing problems that you do not want to deal with they could mm. be career problems you don't like your job uh it could be a marital stress or strain or a divorce it could be the death of a friend or the death of a loved one um, there could be many different things but sometimes we need to travel to unusual places especially because we just need to literally escape whatever it is that we're facing at home or you know another category too uh wanderlust also are thrill seekers so then we yeah. talk about places like afghanistan there's other people who need a sort of adrenaline 
they need that sort of sense of danger, that sense of like living on the edge. And you can't get that in, you know, in Staines or Shrewsbury or wherever. So you've got to go someplace more exciting because it's just too mundane at home. So there's a lot of different things that can propel us abroad. I sort of tried to not just talk about this in the book in, a, in an academic way, but to introduce you to people who are like that. My goal in the book really, and why I wrote the book was to really sort of make sense of wanderlust. Because for me, uh, wanderlust has guided my life. It's been the guiding force of my life. It's driven me across so many countries and states. And um, it's dictated my career and many other things. And I was surprised that I couldn't really find a book about it. There's a lot of books that talk about wanderlust, but they don't actually endeavor to explain it. They just mm. document their own wanderlust, but they never really looked at it in terms of, well, what research is there and what actually causes it or what, what is wanderlust all about? And so that's why I wrote the book was really to sort of understand wanderlust. And the stories that I stumbled across, like with William Bakelin and the others, um, I use those as, as, as a means to really put, put faces, put human faces on wanderlust and help people understand what wanderlust is. Yeah, and that's why I loved your chapter about you start mentioning studies. You know, what is it in us that makes us want to travel? Why do people stay at home? Why are people not interested? Why do people thrill seek abroad and in these like weird places that no one's ever been to? I don't know how to put it. It's like, oh shit, I'm looking at myself here. Like, what what am I? All these studies, like, am I that group? Am I that person with that gene? Am I escapism, like you said? Like what what am I? Why am I always like trying to travel all the time? So that's quite a interesting chapter and a very thought-provoking i think for me thank you for a lot of us uh I, you know i had feedback from some people who said that it was in some spots of the book maybe difficult to read because yeah you're thinking about yourself it causes you to think about i think a lot of us travel and we don't question sometimes why we are doing it or what is actually propelling us so i think i've had a number of different travelers tell me that they thought about things they thought about their travel and why they travel in a different way after reading the book things that they had never really sort of considered before um, caused them to sort of scratch their head and think, oh, okay, well, I guess a lot of people saw something of themselves in the book, even though the main characters are really extreme travelers. Mm. Even people who are sort of casual travelers, I think, will find elements of themselves in the book. Yeah, and I was asking myself, like, if someone said to me, even before your book, actually, because um, I think that did change a few things, but before the book, if someone says to me, why do you travel so much or try to travel so much? I think my answer would have been, well, what else is there? Like, yeah, what, get a job, like nine to five, like buy a house. I don't like materialistic things. I'm not, I'm not I don't own anything. Like, it's not my thing. If I go for experiences, that's probably what I would have said. But I think it's maybe a bit deeper than that, maybe with what you, you're referring to, your studies and what you found. And yeah, thought provoking thing of why, what pushes you to go? Because some people yes. love, I think there's one traveler in your book who, who's a, an innate traveler, I can't remember who it was, who said, but they love going home. They love being at home as well. Come up who that was. This is that was uh, Don Parrish, who is actually, mm. by by many regards, the the most traveled person in the world. Oh wow! Yeah. Um. Don is and Don is again example of a of a systematic extreme traveler who is an extremely impressive traveler. Just very very intelligent, super curious, really learns about the places that he travels to. I was just so impressed with Don, and I've become friends with him over. A period of years but yeah don don has told me that his favorite place is still home you know when he gets interviewed he still says he's been to every country and it's been to you know <laughs> so many islands so many provinces states uh, everywhere but he still really appreciates home and he says he calls himself a homebody which i think is really kind of a bit of a joke too but yeah <laughs> he does consider himself a homebody because he really still really appreciates home 
But I think that that's a special talent that he has, because I think what happens to a lot of other travelers, myself included, is the opposite sort of thing can happen where we become very jaded. And, you know, if you've been to the Taj Mahal and you've been to Mount Kilimanjaro and places like this, how do you enjoy like your neighborhood park or how do you enjoy the simple pleasures of life, like just going for a walk with a friend or enjoying a pint um, at the pub? Those things can seem very boring if you've been to extremely exciting places. And I think to me, that is one of the greatest dangers of travel is that we become spoiled and jaded where it has to be like a UNESCO World Heritage Site to get us excited. And if it's, you know, if it's only just mildly interesting place, you're like, oh, ho, ho, I've seen something better than that. And honestly, there's nothing worse than people like that, where you go somewhere with someone like out to eat or something like that. And they think, oh, what you got to eat. Let's say you go to an Indian restaurant here in Florida with someone, right? And they say, oh, well, this is crap because I've really, I've been to India and, you know, this is not authentic <laughs> and so on and so forth. People like that are just sort of insufferable, like bores, aren't they? To be yeah, like. yeah, absolutely. So yeah. This is like that. And there's that sort of one upmanship in travel community too, where people always want to say that wherever you were, oh, well, that's not as good. Well, you didn't go to such and such place. You know, you could say that you went to, oh, I don't know. When you were in Argentina, you could say that uh, you went to Mendoza. And oh, you went to Mendoza? Why the heck did you go there? should have gone to this other place, San Antonio mm-hmm. to Areco or some other place, you know, whatever. And that sort of thing is, you know, again, the danger of travel because you want to always have fresh eyes and an open mind to experiences. And you don't want to carry that baggage with you of everywhere you've been before and thinking, oh, well, it's not as good as whatever else. So I think that's one of the, one of the dangerous things about uh, hypermobility and about extreme travel uh, but Don is someone who has managed to uh, manage not to become infected by that. So kudos <laughs> to you, Don Parrish. I hope Don listens to the episode. I'll tag him in it to make sure he listens. <laughs> and just before we carry on with the, this chat also, the premise of the book, um, you're following William Bakerland, is that right? That's He's the running line in the book, who was yeah. this young English guy, allegedly got you know billionaire. He can travel as much as he wants, taking these groups of travellers, these extreme travellers on these trips to far-flung places and you... I guess you were a bit suspicious and maybe what to investigate how and what was going on really. So that's kind of that. And yeah. also you delve into other stuff like the, the studies and why do people travel and why do people hate yeah. travel and stuff. So it started out just, as I said, as a, I did not intend to write a book. I didn't stumble across the story of William Bakelin and think, okay, let's write a book about this. What happened was I started to write a book about wanderlust. And what I really wanted to do was understand the motivations for why we travel. And I started this project by thinking, what's the best way to tackle wanderlust? And I thought, well, let's meet the most wanderlust-stricken people in the world. So I really endeavored to meet the world's greatest travelers and explorers and such. And I started doing that over a period of several years. And I got to know these people. And I got to know their subculture and meet many of them. And let's say three or four years into this project, I already knew the name William Bakeland because... I was trying to interview Will, William for the book, and I was trying to get him onto a, a, a reality uh, like documentary series that I was hoping to produce about extreme travel. And so William Bakelin was a known commodity to me by the time it was, I guess, in 2018 or 2019, when the extreme travel community started to unravel his story and realize that many things that they thought they knew about William were not true. And so by the time that this happened, by the time that William's story was unraveling, I knew exactly who he was. And he and I had been corresponding already for a few years. And I thought to myself, this is actually the central story that I want to tell to help explain wanderlust. Because to me, I couldn't think of a better example of wanderlust and sort of the perils of wanderlust and what it's all about 
then not only William, but also the travelers who, in, who trusted him and were counting on him to get to these crazy, desperate places around the world. And do you think that because he was young and supposedly very, very rich, uh, the part of me when I was reading the book was like, oh, if I was that young and had that money, I would go and travel as much as I can, right? Why, why wouldn't you? No need to work. And you can literally take as many trips as you want, go to wherever you want, and it's at no cost, especially being that young as well. Right. And so just to sort of explain to, you know, to listeners who haven't, you know, read it all about the book. So what William was is, I'll say, you know, what the travelers thought he was, excuse me, is that they thought that he was a, at the time, 21, 22 year old billionaire with a B of, of noble lineage of, uh, you know, sort of an, a British aristocrat coming from an aristocratic family who had inherited a tremendous fortune and that he was traveling to all these far flung and unique and exotic places just to fulfill his own wanderlust and his own curiosity. And so William was, um, William was finding very ingenious ways to get these travelers to forbidden and closed places around the world, places that you cannot go to booking.com or Expedia.com <laughs> and type in the search bar. The search bar will not even recognize these places on booking.com, right? Because there's no flights there. Mm. There's no ferry services, things of that nature. So William was very resourceful and he was finding ways to get to places these travelers thought they would never be able to tick off of their list, right? And he was charging them money, but their understanding of it was that it wasn't a profitable endeavor for William. He was just this, you know, young billionaire who was wanting to get to the same places and such. So, and he was for a period of a year or two, William was taking people to places that, again, they thought were closed on the map. And I think the way one traveler put it, I quoted him in the book was that William was literally expanding the map for us. He was opening up new frontiers. He was a travel god. And so that's who they thought he was. And for a period of time, he really was. Uh, that person. And he was destined to become the world's greatest explorer, the greatest traveler in history, really, because he was only in his early 20s. And he had already really sort of seemingly been everywhere. And that was kind of what I thought when you mentioned the group of people that you've met on, on your researchers, but they're all older, uh, mostly male, I think you said. Yep, yep. So they, these are all like, you can even say retirement age-ish, around that age. In theory, here comes this, this guy's early 20s. Well, if he is what you say is that he is going to be the most troubled person in the world because there's nothing stopping him. There's literally yep. no monetary value. He just needs the motivation to keep going. Yeah, yep. in theory, I guess he would become the most troubled person ever. Yep. Yeah, that's and, who they thought he was. A few of them were younger. There are a few of them were in their 40s, but many of these guys were in their 60s and 70s. Because let's face it, that's that's the time when people have more wealth and more time on their hands to take these very time-consuming ships around the world to find these islands and stuff like that. So yeah. A lot of them were quite older and a number of them became really close to William and they considered him to be like a son. It was uh, it was a very close relationship in some in some cases. And these trips to these remote places are not cheap, are they? Because these are not your booking.com trips. These no, are not at all. extreme. So these are tens of thousands of dollars, right? Correct. In, in some cases, in some cases, these trips were 10, 15, 20 thousand dollars. Um, I should point out to you when you when you ask, there's obviously going to be some female listeners here who are by this point in the conversation are wondering, why do we keep talking um, about men and did, were there not any yeah. women who were ripped off by William and stuff like that? So we may as well um, address that while it's at the top of my mind, because there are some even though the you know, the, I think the top 20 or so travelers um, on both of the main travel clubs, most travel people in Nomad Mania are men. There are some you know amazing female travelers out there who have 
done a lot as well and have been to every country and are, are extremely well-traveled. And um, I've met some of them and interviewed some of them for the book too. However, none of them got involved with William <laughs> and none of them uh, were ever offered uh, anything by William and none of them ever ended up traveling with William. And it's interesting. I can give you now a tidbit after traveling with a few of these women in Azerbaijan last yeah. September after the book came out. But that, tell you oh, cool. a, little, a little tidbit here that, thank you, it was not even in the book. I don't think I put this in the article either, but I found out that I asked a few of these women because they knew William, they'd met him, but um, they never went on a trip with William. I asked them how come they never went on any of these grand expeditions with William or never lost money with him. All three of them said the same thing. They said that because William didn't take credit cards and we don't trust anyone who doesn't take credit cards. Oh, wow. And so I thought that's really interesting. So, <laughs> so the women were a little too street smart, to be quite honest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and maybe a little more sensible, sensibly cautious in the, in the regard of not being willing to wire money into someone's bank account who would, was not accepting credit cards. So it was a very um, something that I never thought of, but it was quite a common sense um, objection that they had. It almost seems arbitrary, just a credit card, then accept it. Actually, it's quite a big thing with insurance, right? No, yeah. what they were saying is that, you know, that they never want to book, they, they like to book all of their trips with credit cards to have that peace of mind that if something goes wrong or whatever, you'll be able to get a refund. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's quite, an interesting quite point. Quite sensible, quite sensible. <laughs> I actually thought you were going to say that they had to some sort of innate instinct, like, no, just didn't quite trust the guy, that there's something in the back of their mind, but I didn't expect no, I something think, so tangible no, as think, that. I think everyone mm. trusted him. Wow, it's amazing how he got to get that trust from the, these guys. These, these aren't your regular travels, these are the top echelons of travelers, right? You don't get any more travel than oh, these guys. And I, and, and I should say too, that like, if you could not fool these people in terms of your knowledge of geography and travel in the yeah. world. By yeah. that, what I mean is that you could not, let's say you, you know, you, you, you tell me the name of some famous con artist in Canada or the UK. And, you know, if I told this con artist, okay, I've got this group of travelers, I want you to pull this con on them. They would not be able to do that because it would it would take years to really know build up a base of knowledge about all these destinations around the world that William knew. And although many things about William's story or what the travelers thought they knew about William turned out to be false, the one real enduring thing about him, which I have personally validated as, as factual, is his passion for travel and geography in the world and his curiosity. And in it, he is infected with wanderlust, just like the rest of us. And um, I've gotten to know William actually fairly well over the period of years of researching this book. And he and I are still in touch. And he has a genuine, very genuine passion for travel and exploration and knowledge of the world that was not faked in any way, shape or form. And it would have been impossible to, to, to fake with these guys because um, these are people who have traveled all over the world. And so you couldn't, you really couldn't, you know, couldn't fool them. And so his, his passion and knowledge of geography was, was legitimate. So that genuine interest was there, genuine which is quite interest, key. But, all, but also knowledge too. He was to impress these people mm. and to impress people like this is not easy. He was able to do that. And what was most impressive for them too, was that it was someone who was in his, his early twenties. And yeah. so he was so much younger than them. And yet it already seemingly been everywhere and do so much. <laughs> about so many random country and obscure places around the world. It's remarkable. That is remarkable, yeah. And even not that extreme, when I hear someone who's 18, 19, who went traveling for, I don't know, six months, but no, nothing special in terms of going out there to 
weird places, just traveling at 18, 19, you think, wow, like when I think back to that age, there's no way I could have done that. And they're already ahead of so many people with that yep. six months to a year uh, travel. Crazy. I would say aside from being, a, you know, aside from being, you know, an intelligent young man and uh, for being, you know, so well, you know, well read and w very well spoken, very articulate. He's also um, sort of a charming individual, just to look a very pleasant person to, you know, to correspond with and have a conversation with. Uh, provided that he's not, you don't get on his bad list. If you do get on his uh, bad list, they become suspicious of you. As happened to me when I was researching the book, then he started threatening me with lawsuits and things like that yeah. because he was afraid that I was going to treat his story in the same way that like the Daily Mail and other tabloids did. And then once I, I proved that I was not planning to do that, mm. then all of a sudden everything was fine again. And, mm. um, and, I, and I was very, very surprised that William actually ended up enjoying the book and we ended oh, up did he once the book came out we ended up having a much better uh working relationship uh once he was able to read it that's very interesting because yeah. if you read the book uh, listen you gotta get this book because it's such an interesting read that you think from reading that that he wouldn't like it based on the conclusions that maybe you found out you know some stuff just wasn't that true and he was a bit of a con artist no he actually i'll, I'll be honest with you I think that William understood the book and the points that I was trying to make in the book better than anyone else in the world. And I say that because William ended up writing a review of the book, which has since been oh. deleted, unfortunately, oh. um, which is a very long story, which I won't get into here. However, I will say that the review that I've, you know, I've received a lot of very kind reviews for the book, but I will say that the review that, that William wrote of this book was probably, it was, well, not probably, it was the most perceptive and flattering review that the book has received. He got it, I think, better than anyone else did. He's, <laughs> I have to say, he's he's a very smart young man. <laughs> yeah. uh, I did not expect to hear that. And what? Where is his standing now with the um, travelers that you mentioned in the book, who were obviously trusting him? Like, what's that relationship like? Not, I think you might be different, but maybe with those guys, what's where, where are we at with so that? So there are there are a minority of extreme travelers who still admire William and who still like him and don't hold anything that happened against him. Some are still in contact with him, but the majority of them are not in contact with him anymore. And a small number of them are still trying to pursue him to receive uh, money back that they believe that they are owed, including one gentleman who is still pursuing William in the French court system. Okay. And is it fair to say that these trips conned or not, because they're so extreme, there's no guarantees, right? So if you're going to Bouvet Island, and it just isn't safe to get onto the island. They're gonna, they're gonna say no, and that's it. Like, is it, there's no comeback on on your money for that, right? Right. So, I mean, I, I did get into this sort of in more detail in the book, but suffice it to say, without giving away too much, what I would say here is that that is the crux of sort of William's defense and William's defenders. What do William's defenders will say is that in in this sort of a world of you know extreme travel. Oftentimes trips are canceled or it is impossible to pull off trips. William and some others claim that um, that many of these canceled trips uh, were sort of genuine good faith efforts on William's part for these trips to occur. And for certain circumstances beyond his control, he was unable to pull them off. Okay. And for these extreme trips as well, is there anyone else now who's still trying to do these trips or is it, is it really like, like... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're still, not, still trying not, to do it. Not with William, but no, no. Yeah. are these people still trying to go to all these places? Yeah. Absolutely, they are. Right. And I've got to list some of these pandemic, places as well. Yeah, the pandemic sort of uh, stopped people for a, a couple of months, and that was it. <laughs> a couple of months, right? <laughs> Makes me laugh. Okay. 
I've got a list of countries here. Well, not countries, places in these countries that you just wouldn't have heard of. Um, I'm keen to get what your thoughts are. Bouvet Island, who does that belong to? Norway. Bouvet Island is sort of essential. Bouvet Island is really the most important of the obscure places in the book. It is the world's most remote island. It's in the South Atlantic Ocean. And uh, no one lives there, but it is um, a place to get to, a destination. On the, it is the most difficult destination to get to that's on these travel lists. Bouvet is the holy grail of extreme travel destinations. And getting to Bouvet is, um, is really something to have on your resume. A number of these guys, great world travelers, um, have been within eyesight. They've spotted Bouvet Island. They've, yeah. they've gone through ex- tremendous expense and time, expenditure of money and time to get to Bouvet only to be circling out on a boat and not be able to land on it because the seas are so treacherous. And when you do not land, you cannot count it as a trip. So a number of these guys have seen Bouvet Island, but they've not stepped foot on it and therefore still have not been there and still want to go. And reaching Bouvet was sort of how a number of them were sort of seduced by William in the first place, because they all went there together trying to reach Bouvet Island on this big Mm. cruise. And uh, none of them were able to reach it because the seas were too rough. And William told people that he was going back on his own ship. And so a number of them were like, okay, let's, let's stay in touch with this guy because (laughs) they were very frustrated not having been able to land on Bouvet. So Bouvet is extremely important place. Uh, Very few human beings have successfully landed there. Yes. Many of the extreme travelers are still trying to get there. And there are, I believe a couple of Russian travelers I know, who are um, still trying to get there and maybe planning an attempt, I believe, in the next six months or so. Wow. And I think you go into this book and in, in the book to this, like, what is what is it of like the time between on the island, you can sit uh, on the boat, you can see the island and bear in mind, yeah, these aren't places you go for holiday to sit on the sand and have a cocktail, right? You just need to get there. Like, what is that feeling between not getting there on the boat and then stepping on that island? Like, what is it that just gets these people over the line? Like, I can't quite pinpoint what is the motivation just to get the foot on the island like somewhere like that? Is it just a ticket off? Is it just to say we've been there? Like what is the actual thing? I think that they do view these difficult to reach, you know, white whales as sort of an, as an achievement. And they okay. know what the, they know what the benchmark is. They know that it does not count just sailing near it. And so for them, it is an actual achievement and it's something that they um, work towards. Um, it takes a lot of planning mm. in some cases, not a matter of just writing a check getting to a place like that. And there's a lot of suffering sometimes involved at sea, being in rough waters, things like that. So it is a legitimate achievement to figure out how to step foot on a place like that and to endure it. Mm -hmm. Again, this is not someplace that you can just write a check and fly to. You know what I mean? So it's not just a matter of having money getting to the Bouvet Islands or the Marian Islands or these other places of the world. So I think that they, you know, they view it as a legitimate, you know, achievement or accomplishment. And they know that just seeing it or being near it is doesn't count. So it's sort of like, you know, I'll give an analogy to American football. For American football, you have to get into the end zone to score a touchdown, which is six points. Yeah. And if you make it to the one yard line or the one foot line, yeah, you're close, but that still does not count. <laughs> They're not going to hand you six points because you got near there. It's just like in darts, right? If like, if, you know, if you're near yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're near the double 20, they're not just going to give you 40 points just because you got close to it. True. <laughs> it must be so devastating for them as well that they're that close. Oh, absolutely. That's a huge, you know, these are people who are very lucky to travel, but I'm just saying like from that point of view of, of what they're trying to achieve, it must be mentally no, it is. challenging it's, it's, uh, to be that close. It is. And for example, uh, you know, Charles Vealy, I want to mention him because he's another spectacular traveler, one of the world's most traveled people. 
and he's the founder of the Most Travel People website. I think he's a pretty remarkable traveler. He is one of the few who have been to Bouvet Island. Ah, okay. And uh, but he had you know some enormous sacrifices. He detailed in a podcast interview a few years back that I listened to to get there. As I recall, he had a newborn baby at home, and I think I might have mentioned that in the book. And so, in going there, involved he was going there, I believe, with the, with a with sort of a military delegation or something like that, who was going there from Norway. And in, in the only way for him to go there, he had to leave his family. I believe it was for a couple of months, and he had a newborn baby at home. Wow. And so, these are sacrifices that people make in order to achieve these goals, just like the sacrifices that, as you mentioned, that you know that a Roger Federer might make in order to achieve his goals. So. Yeah, I mean, they're they have their goals, and, and achieving these goals are very important to them, and they do get a tremendous satisfaction from from achieving them. Yeah, and they've got a list of other places here that you just mentioned, but there's more. But these are ones that I just listed here: Tristan da Cunha. Not again, not really sure where that is. It sounds Portuguese or Brazilian. No, but... no it's it's English. It's a, yeah. actually they're English citizens there. There's about yeah, this is actually oh, an wow. interesting island because it is the remote world's most remote inhabited island. So ah. Uve is the most remote uninhabited island, and Tristan de Cunha is the most remote island that uh, people live on. And there's about 200 or so British citizens there who have very peculiar accents, and it's also very difficult to land there. It's in the same general neighborhood of the South Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Um, and that is a place that does have regular ferry service, but it's very infrequent. And it takes, I believe, 10 days there and 10 days back. So you're looking at 20 days at sea just to visit this island. Wow. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned Mogadishu, which I guess people yeah. know where that is, but just because it's sure. dangerous, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So um, there, uh, there's a gentleman named Kolya Spori, another great traveler, um, who who organizes these uh, extreme travel conferences every year, sometimes multiple per year. I went to one of them in, in Azerbaijan in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh last year and wrote about it. But um, several years back, he hosted a uh, extreme travel conference in Mogadishu. And William was there as well as were many of these other main travelers. And they had to have a tremendous amount of security. And they maybe just for bragging rights, I don't know why, but they also held the conference at a hotel that had just been bombed, I believe, the previous year and had suffered significant casualties there. Yeah. Well, in the article, you mentioned that there's a place you're trying to get to, but it was too, the weather wasn't great. And then one guy in this article in Azerbaijan went up the hill with a guide to go to this yeah. place. And got into a car accident. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one that's wanderlust for you there too. And I wanted to get to this village too. This is a uh, it's a village called Kinalink, which is up in uh in, in, in the mountains of Azerbaijan. And they speak a very interesting dialect there, supposedly. And I really wanted to get there, but we had very inclement weather and it was getting very late in the day. And I knew that by the time we'd arrive in this village, it would be dark out. And I just thought, I can't do this, you know, it's too too dangerous. And uh, one of the other extreme travelers just insisted and he, he pulled it off. He ended up going there, but he did get into a car accident <laughs> on the way back and was like six hours late getting back to the hotel. So, uh, yeah, that's wanderlust for you. It causes us to do things like that. <laughs> that's unreal. And I've got my notes here about country counting. There's a podcast for this, right? Um, I think it's the Country Counting Podcast. Well, yeah, let me give him a plug too. the Counting Countries podcast with Rick Gazarian. Yeah. who's another yeah. great traveler. Ed, that's, that's a really interesting podcast. I like his podcast a lot. Shout that's, out to Rick Azarian Accounting Countries. That's a great one. That's very hard to get into that group, right? Invite onto the podcast. Is that right? I, I read somewhere that... Yeah, it can't be that hard because Rick had me on. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, it, it, he, Rick, Rick is definitely very selective in terms of who he will invite on the show. No question. Yeah. Okay. These different groups, Nomad Mania, MTP, TCC, Counting Countries... 
Um, I guess, are all these people on each group or is it like you're more loyal to one group? Yeah, well, there's some people who just by the nature of where they've been prefer one one site over another because the lists are very specific to their founders, to be quite honest with you. So the founder of Nomad Mania is Harry Mitsidis. And um, so that's sort of his brainchild. And the founder of uh, Most Travel People is Charles Vealy. You know, I think that Don Parrish likes the MTP list, the Most Travel People list a little bit better because he's number one on that one. But yeah, the, the lists are, are their own peculiar things. And some people do prefer one over the other, but many of them are on are on both, both lists, both clubs. Okay. And yeah, I want to get to, to about people who have an excessive need to travel. We talked a little bit about it already. Do you see maybe post pandemic, post COVID, whether that's going to slow down or do you think it's going to increase more with people wanting to get out there to these extreme places? Because I thought maybe, I don't know, this is like a different level, but pre pre COVID travel was arguably out of control, right? No regulations. Mm-hmm. Some places are super busy, environment getting damaged, but maybe COVID's maybe held us back a little bit and a bit of a reset, a bit of a cliche saying there, but do you think it will slow down or do you think it's going to actually increase because people think, well, if that happens again for two years, I'm missing out. So I need to get there as soon as possible. Oh, there's a huge pent up desire to travel. I think that that is across the board. It's to everything from all inclusive resorts to Disney World to Hove Island and beyond. Um, I do think so. I think the travel, I, I still think this year, because there's still a lot of COVID around in different countries and there's still restrictions and People still don't are still concerned because in a lot of places you have to take a test or depending on what country you live in, you might have to take a toe test to get back in. I mean, here in the U.S., we just got rid of that, thank God, a few weeks ago. But, you know, I had friends before who wanted to go to other countries and stuff. But the issue is they've got jobs to get back to or commitments. And the concern is that, like I had a friend, for example, who was in Europe earlier, um, you know, a couple of months ago and they got COVID while they were there and they couldn't come back. So they had to wait while they're there. And it's like, mm. oh, God, now you have to tell your boss, oh, gosh, I'm going to be away for a week, another week of work. And so I think that like this year, things are still a little bit sketchy, like travels coming back, but it's still a little bit restrained on a global scale because of the pandemic still. I really hope that next year it's totally unthrottled and unfiltered. And I hope that all the people who have been cooped up at home unfairly for a period of years, um, especially people in places that were really harshly locked down, like Argentina, for example, where Tony yeah. was coming from. I mean, I'll just give you an example. My, uh, we had a tour guide one day in Buenos Aires who told me, so they had two long lockdowns there. The first one was for more than six months in 2020. She literally did not leave her house a single time over a period of six months. Wow. So you were only allowed to leave the house for getting you know, food or medicine. And she lives with her parents. Her parents were doing that. So she had no legitimate reason to go anywhere. She literally didn't leave the house for six months. So for people like that who suffered, and then, and then in 2021 in the spring, Argentina had an, another lockdown of two months. So over a period of like out of a year and a half, she spent like eight months at home. For people who suffered like that, we never you know, had anything like that here in Florida, mm. anything remotely like that. But especially for the people in lockdown countries around the world, God, I hope they get a chance to travel to their heart's content. They really deserve it. Yeah. And what about the extreme traveler community? Did they also stay at home for a bit or were they sort of like, <laughs> I, I, you could still travel, couldn't you? Maybe yes, could you, de- could you define a bit? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I was they thinking... stayed at home for a bit. <laughs> um, so different people did different things. I will say yeah. that there were some, it was very, very interesting. I mentioned Kolya Spori, another of my travel heroes, one of the most eccentric extreme travelers. 
you'll read all about this guy in the book. He's a trip. Believe me. I hope he's, I hope he listens to this. So (laughs) Kolya was at odds with others in the extreme travel community at the beginning of the pandemic, because some were saying, and and some were actually sending out newsletters and stuff saying, Hey, we really should stop traveling guys. Mm. And Kolya sent out a letter to the extreme travel community, which I received, which I thought was, you know, it was really vintage Kolya. He said, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase him here. I wish I had it in front of me because I would love to quote it directly, but I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, essentially, how on earth can we call ourselves extreme travelers? We are people who have braved, you know, Mogadishu and figured out how to get to Svalbard and all of these other crazy places. And now we're going to all stay home because, you know, because of a, because of a virus, which is, you know, very similar to the flu and stuff. Again, these are his words, not mine, Mm. so on and so forth. And he said a whole letter essentially saying, well, we shouldn't call ourselves extreme travelers if we're seriously going to sit at home because there's a new virus out there. And, um, you know, some, some others agreed with him wholeheartedly and others vehemently disagreed with him. Yeah. So I will say that I cannot say that all of the extreme travelers behaved in, in X, Y, or Z fashion because they're all very different. But I will say that there was one faction of the community which stopped traveling entirely, but generally only for a few months, to be quite honest, from okay. what I have gathered. So, but let's say maybe two, three months from, let's say maybe March till summer, something like that. Yeah. There were a lot of, a lot of them were not traveling at all. Some of them could not travel at all because they were stuck in, well, yeah. you know, <laughs> countries they didn't, they, in, in whatever their home country was. And like, for example, like Dominique Laurent, the Frenchman who is uh, one of the gentlemen who is suing uh, William Bakeland, he was stuck in Paris and he literally was confined to like a three kilometer radius from his house, which he said was like a prison for him. <laughs> So um, there was that group. There was another, I would say, a very small group of people who, out of caution, maybe for their health and such, maybe stayed home a little longer than three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say most of them were back up and traveling again by the summer of 2020. Some people never stopped at all. I met some who I met um, a couple of travelers who told me that they visited just since the start of the pandemic until when did I see them? In, from the start of the pandemic until March of 2021, when I traveled with them in Nagorno-Karabakh, there were a couple of travelers in that group who had visited in excess of 50 or 60 countries just since the start of the pandemic. So I believe the, the one who took the cake or won an award at the last meeting, I believe she visited something like, I, I mentioned it in the Azerbaijan article, but yeah. I think it was 80, 80, 80 countries. 82, 80, 83, something like that? I don't know. 80, I remember reading I was shocked. I believe, I believe she visited 80 some odd countries. Yeah. Just since the start of the pandemic. <laughs> now, I know a lot of people listening or others uh, outside will think, oh, that's that's awful. That's irresponsible. That's this, that, and the other thing. Okay, maybe you're entitled to that opinion. However, having traveled you know, to a lot of countries during the pandemic myself, nowhere near 83, but let's say eight or 10 countries, I will say, though, that people have to remember that travel accounts for something like 10% of the world's global economy. <laughs> Yeah. 10% of the 10% of the jobs around the world are either directly or indirectly related to the travel industry. And so you go to places like, okay, so obviously countries like Canada or the US or the UK were harshly affected by the pandemic and all the travel restrictions, no question. But nowhere near to the degree as you know, countries and destinations that have their entire economy wrapped around tourism. Yeah. So, you know, the Bali's of the world, the places yeah. like this. I will give you one example. I traveled to the Dominican Republic in Easter of, what was it, 2021. 
So March 2021, April 2021, I traveled to the Dominican Republic. The country was just opening back up. Wow, was that country starved for tourists. I mean, I would love all of the people who think that who were sitting in their, you know, ivory tower or their cubicle, wherever, who was saying, oh, how, could, how dare you travel? How dare, how dare, could, what a horrible moral decision you made in traveling to whatever country. Really? I would love for you to meet some of the people that I hired in the Dominican Republic to drive me from point A to point B or the, exactly. people, that I, yeah. or the people that I hired as tour guides or the, all the different people that I put money into their pockets directly. Mm. I would love for you to tell those people who are literally starving and who are growing food in their backyards to survive for more than a year that all the people who are putting money in their pockets are horrible people. Because guess what? They don't feel that way in, in these countries. And so- the places these extreme travelers are traveling to, um, rest assured, they're not going to London and Paris and Venice and Disney yeah. World. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they're going to very weird and obscure and mostly impoverished places where um, foreigners with money coming are very welcome <laughs> because people, in, and that's in normal times, foreigners are really welcome. Mm. During pandemic times, even more so because people are literally going hungry in a lot of poor countries. So you know what? I'm not saying that the people who traveled and never stopped even for a moment made the correct decision. And I'm not saying they made a good decision or a bad decision. What I'm saying is I would like all the judgmental people in the world who think that travel during the pandemic, especially the early part of it, was totally immoral. I would like for them to see that there's two sides to every story and yeah. to each equation. That's It's more complicated than you think because there was a lot of um, travel shaming that was going on, especially in 2020 yeah. of like the, how dare you is how dare you, how, how could you be traveling? You must be a horrible, awful person. Well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and even take COVID away, right? Let's, let's talk about countries that were like, maybe in the media were shown as a dangerous country, for example. So I had a friend who went to Egypt who traveled solo down the Nile. And locals were saying to him, you know, why aren't people coming to Egypt? This is before COVID. Why aren't they coming to Egypt anymore? And my friend Scott was like, well, you kind of like been put in the light of being dangerous. So people don't want to risk coming there. So even before something like COVID, which is huge, people were not traveling to these countries because it's perceived as dangerous. So that already their tourism was, was slashed. Places like Sri Lanka right now, where in the news, yeah, you'll see they've got some problems they have, but tourists are absolutely fine there and they need tourism. It's, it's their main industry. Yeah. So these places need it. Like it's hard to explain I, to people. I, I, how about, Brazil? How about Brazil, where I just was? It's, it's hard to think of a of another country, another large country, mm. not, not just small war-torn ones, but it's hard to think of another large country that's gotten such negative press, you know, in recent yeah. years. First of all, for crime, especially in Rio de Janeiro, where I was, and secondly, for their response to the COVID pandemic. Um, so Brazil has gotten a tremendous black eye around the world. I mean, and when I told people we're going to Brazil, especially with two children, they're like, what? I mean, are you serious? Are you are you nuts? And then, you know, even taking it further than that, no, were we hanging out in favelas and stuff like that? No, we weren't. But um, we did one night go to and this is it turned out to be the, the experience of the entire trip. We did yeah. go to Maracanã. We did go to Maracanã Stadium for a Flamengo oh. match. Oh, awesome. which was, <laughs> you know, and many, many people would think you've got to be mad or nuts to bring children to an environment like that. But I'll tell you, it was the signature experience of our yeah. trip. I mean, watching a Flamengo match, Flamengo is the most popular uh, soccer yeah. football club in, black. in Brazil. Watching them, you know, in Maracanã Stadium, I'm so glad we did that. I did not succumb to all of the naysayers telling me, even including some Brazilian people telling me, ah, you really <laughs> sure you want to do that? 
Um, there's always going to be people like that in life um, and it, it, who will warn you about places, but it's just, it's up to each person to determine what is your threshold of comfort. Yeah, absolutely. American R, so, I saw Messi play in American R in the World Cup. I don't think there'd be anything that beats that. Did you? Um, iconic. <laughs> yeah, that and he scored. Awesome. He scored at our end, so even better. And at the at the tail end of the trip, we got to see Luis Suarez in. Um, oh, I saw that. Yeah, back to Uruguay, we saw Luis Suarez's yeah. first match back in Uruguay, playing for Nacional, which was his boyhood Huge. club. We were there for his first match, so that was also really exciting. Though I have to say, by Maracana standards, it was somewhat tame. It was <laughs> yeah. like if I hadn't been, seen a, just seen a match in Maracana a week before. <laughs> would have seemed it would have seemed really wild and raucous but compared to that it was somewhat tame american art is i think it's the most one apart from wembley maybe in england a bit biased there it's probably one of the most iconic football stadiums in the world if you have to go and see a match and if you Gotta go to a brazilian be. match like flamengo oh, go there be. and just to finish quickly on your book um what has been the kind of reaction in the, in the extreme travel community of your book was it like well received was it maybe not well received like what was the feeling amongst those people in the extreme travel community i think there was um the book was very well received we we're just talking about you know people being judgmental this is a community that is maybe embattled would that be the right word to say that this is a community that a lot in the elite travel uh media really look down upon or frown upon there's a lot of snobbery in the travel world Mm. And there's a lot of sort of elitism and there's a perception of these people that they are um, not serious travelers, that they are tick the box people. They're sort of really, they're used to sort of being portrayed negatively. Yeah. And so I think that before the book came out, probably some of them thought, "Uh oh, what is it? You know, he's a journalist, a writer. What is he going to say about us? Is he going to portray us as a bunch of, <laughs> you know, horrible people? Yeah. Um, and look down is look down on us, you know, as sort of this sort of elitist, you know, from this elitist perch, which a lot of uh, the travel media does perceive them in that sort of way. And so I think that that they were relieved that I treated them, I think, respectfully and tried to really um, immerse myself in their community and understand them. So the, uh, the response in that community was very, very good. <laughs> I will say in the broader travel media community. Um, you know, trying to working with the publisher and their marketing people and such of trying to court, um, you know, media attention from like sort of glossy travel magazines and mainstream <laughs> travel publications. And the reaction from those people was was not good, to say the least. Oh, not that, you know, they read the book and said, oh, it's an awful book or anything like that. But I think that um, they have such when I say they I mean, you know, sort of travel editors and you know, the sort of travel media community. And when I say travel media, I don't mean bloggers and, you know, you know, and people who have YouTube channels and stuff like that. I mean, people who are, you know, the editors of, I hate to mm. name specific magazines because then I really will never get any coverage. In them, but, <laughs> you know, the, the editors of important travel magazines and publications, let's put it that way. Yeah. They do not um, have a lot of respect for extreme travel and extreme travelers. Um, part of that is wrapped up in feeling that these folks are are not responsible from an environmental perspective. They don't like the idea of jet setting around the world for for one thing, because they think that it's, you know, it's, with climate change, it's uh, not, not responsible, not ethical, things of that nature. Um, I could give you one example, one magazine I will name, and I don't mind naming because they broke an assignment with me as Outside Magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with that one oh, or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Outside Magazine asked me to write a story actually about the story that you read. It was ultimately published in Perceptive Travel, which is a yes. wonderful magazine. 
um, online magazine, but a good one run by Tim Leffel, who is an excellent travel editor. I do recommend um, it ultimately was published by them, but I was about that story about uh, going to the extreme travel conference in Nagorno-Karabakh was supposed to be published in outside magazine. But when I submitted it, they essentially did not like my take on the uh, extreme travel community because it wasn't sufficiently um, critical mean. enough of that. <laughs> mean I, enough, it yeah. <laughs> wasn't sufficiently mean enough. They really wanted me to, um, to condemn these people for their perceived sins, climate change and, you know, uh, other stuff. I, I would just say that like the worldview of these folks in the sort of, you know, elite sort of travel media versus the worldview of people in the extreme travel community are really sort of polar opposite. Mm. And um, the two groups do not understand each other at all. I, I feel like you always really have to get to know people before you judge them. But I think there's an awful lot of people who have decided that competitive travelers and elite travelers, you know, systematic travelers, whatever you want to call them, country collectors, country, country counters, that they, there's just, there's very little respect for these folks amongst the travel media community. They think that these people are, um, as I said, they just don't respect them. They think that they're just traveling around, not learning about the places. They think that they're all rich. They're like a bunch of rich guys jetting around the world, not learning anything, just just doing it for their egos. I wasn't sure if this group was like that or not before I started this project. As I said, I was somewhat circumspect about what this community was about, but I was wanted to give them a chance and really get to know them before I judged them. And I'm glad that I did because I found that um, that, that perceived this really a misperception in most cases. As I said, not all cases, but in most cases, they're actually pretty really hardcore travelers. They're really very legitimate travelers. So I found that that misperception was incorrect, but I found it difficult to get a lot of the elite media interested in the book because of that. They couldn't break past that sort of barrier of their preconceived notions of what extreme travel is all about and just not liking it. <laughs> I can't get my head around this because a travel editor of a magazine. Yeah. Okay. So climate change is something we need to discuss and it's a problem. We know that. Well, if you really want to be real extreme about it, we just don't travel. That, that would solve it, surely. So the fact that no one's doing that, everyone's traveling to an extent, whether that's going by train, by car, or going to the Bouvet Island, like we're all traveling. And right. this extreme traveler group, yeah, they're going to far from places, but I'd imagine they're quite a small percentage of travelers, right? These are the extreme elite. These are like footballers or tennis players. There's right. only two or three top tennis players, Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, right? The rest are tennis players, but these are, these are top-class elite tennis players. These are elite travelers. Right. The, the business travelers who travel short haul flights one hour every, I don't know, twice a day. Like, surely these are a bigger problem than just like the guys at the extreme end who might be going on a boat for 10 days, surely. Right. Now, the other thing that I would say to this also too, is that the biggest problem I think the travel industry had prior to the pandemic is the, you know, is over tourism, which I yeah. do believe is a legitimate problem. Yes. And the problem with over tourism is everyone crowding into the same damn places, right? Yeah. But this is the beauty of the extreme travelers is these people are going to weird and unusual yeah, and wild, exactly. wild places that nobody else is going to. Exactly. Yeah. And not only that, they are, they are documenting these places and hopefully inspiring other people to think, huh, well, no one's going to say, well, you know, I was going to go to Venice, but what the hell, let's go to, you know, let's go to Marion Island instead. But people might, you know, start to consider other places that they wouldn't have otherwise considered. Like, for example, exactly. this wonderful travel I told you about who traveled to 80 countries since the start of the pandemic. I mean, you know, last I checked, she was in places like um, she was in Suriname. She was in the Marshall Islands. She was in American Samoa. Listen, these are all places that could use more tourism. 
And so I love the fact that, you know, the rich irony of this is here you have these magazines, right? Mm, and all yeah. these publications which are promoting all of these damn places which don't need more tourists, which really need less tourists. Exactly. Sitting there, sitting there on their high horses, condemning and judging people who have visited all 54 countries in Africa, right? And who could tell you all about, you know, Togo and all kinds of other places that these elitists would never step foot in. To my, to my way of thinking, how dare they stand in judgment of people who have taken the time to get to know the world's toughest destinations, the world's poorest destinations, places that nobody else would go on holiday. I mean, to me, I, you know, you know, I don't want to keep going on and on about this. I think you guys get the point, but it does, it does bother me. And I was surprised and dismayed that magazines were not interested in the only book that's ever really provided a thoughtful take and a thoughtful look and a thoughtful examination of wanderlust. But what I realized in the end was that these sorts of publications are all they're doing is selling trips. I mean, the point of the travel media is just to sell sort of frivolous trips and to document sort of, you know, 10 things to pack for your trip to Paris and things of that nature. Right. Mm. And my book is, I think, a warts and all look at travel. You've read it. So you could tell there's a lot of negative things about travel in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even though I'm even though I'm a travel, you know, a compulsive traveler, as I say, a pathological traveler, I love traveler. I tried to be honest in the book about some of the negative aspects of travel. Right. Mm. And that sort of ugly side of travel in that how travel can sometimes damage your personal relationships. It can damage your career prospects. It can damage your pocketbook. I tried to be very honest about all that stuff in the book. And I don't really think that sort of honest look at the world of travel is what travel, the travel media wants because their whole goal is to just sell trips. But at the same time, it's very ironic. They're trying to just sell things, but at the same time, they're also making people feel very guilty about travel by constantly highlighting um, the, you know, the impacts of climate change in the travel industry on climate change. So to me, it doesn't make, it doesn't make a lot of sense. No, you're absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I, I'm a bit confused here. <laughs> yeah. The one thing about this book, and this is why people should read it, that I secretly loved is he did go into the downsides of travel. People don't like travel, downsides of extreme travel, you know, not seeing your family, et cetera. Like I, I've never read a book and my podcast, I could be guilty of this as well. Like podcasts, my podcast is very like positive about travel, go here, do that, go there. I don't probably talk enough about the negative side of it. So it's actually quite refreshing to read. Not negative, but like the, the things that are <laughs> not, not so great about it. It's, it's refreshing to read. Yeah. Thank you. You know, because I what my thought was too, like, you know, I don't want to write a book that's all entirely, that only presents one side of a story. Yeah, I yeah. really want to fairly and accurately try to look at this and try to understand it. Because as I point out in the book, imagine what the world would be like if, for example, all book reviews and all film reviews were entirely positive. Well, that's what the entire genre of travel writing and travel media is is about. There's no such thing as a bad trip, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's that's really not accurate in real life, is it? So the entire world of travel literature is in a way completely false. And I wanted my book to be (laughs) I wanted my book to be different than that. I won't say that. There are wonderful there are some wonderful travel books out there about very bad, awful trips. Um, there aren't many of them, but there are some out there. Um, but I will say travel articles, ones that you will read in the travel sections of newspapers and travel magazines, you do not hear accounts of bad trips almost ever in those sorts of publications. <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of bullshit out there. 
And I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be very honest because again, I was trying to diagnose not just these extreme travelers, like as though I'm, you know, uh, studying them like chimps in a zoo, but I also wanted to understand myself because I'm one of the people that I wanted to diagnose. (laughs) That's what I felt I was doing myself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not as extreme as you, but I do have some questions about myself, why I do it and probably some, some of my friends do as well. Right. So, and it's an interesting point because when I had Frank on, I think you downloaded the Afghanistan one. I was really like conflicted, but I was like, no, I've got to do this because yes, the Taliban have got issues. We all know that. But what is the local people on the ground going to say when they see him? And they loved him. They loved like the, the hospitality. He said it was like nowhere else. People like falling over themselves to offer them their guest house. No, no money just to be a guest. So you have to get this also positive spin on these bad countries that have a, a bad reputation because that's also important. And I don't think a lot of these magazines go there because they want to do the top things to see in Paris. Right. Well, we all know that. Right. You know? um, right. So yeah, that's quite interesting to hear Frank talk about that and, and go there with different types of travel and different countries as well. Your Mad Traveler book. Can you tell the listeners maybe where they can buy it? I bought it on Playbooks on my Samsung mobile. So I went there, but I also, Googled, I think I said to you before, I Googled best travel books, 2021, I think at the time, and yours was on the list that I found in a few articles. So, that's why I downloaded yours, but where, where can we find your book? Thank you. As far as I know, you can find it pretty much anywhere that you <clears throat> like to purchase books. Mm-hmm. And so you can find more information about it too on my website, which is daveseminar.com. And I have some links on there. There have been a couple different publications that published excerpts from it. Um, so like Atlas Obscura published an excerpt for it. Somebody else published an excerpt too, and it's horrible. I'm forgetting who it was, but I've got links to those things on the website too. So if you'd like to read the first chapter. I think it was Lit, Lit Hub, which is a good, oh, yeah. a good good website as well, too. I believe Lit Hub published an excerpt and also uh, Atlas Obscura. So you could get a little sample of it for free, too, by reading those two chapters. DaveSeminar.com. Yeah, I'm going to put a link to your website on the show notes. Also, some links to other like Barnes & Noble and Amazon and stuff so they can access Thank your you book for as that. well. Thank you. And we're now going to go some quickfire travel questions to finish. And these are your favorite things. Hey, yeah. Just a quick one before we carry on with the travel questions. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with TeePublic, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as t-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast, and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcasts, and other stuff. Thank you. It's travel question time. So first one I'm going to start with is how many countries have you traveled to? That's interesting because I was just thinking about that, that I went to a couple new ones on this trip. And I don't know what my count is, but I'm I'm in the low 70s. I know that for sure. Okay. And out of those low 70s, three countries that are your favorites. Oh, it just keeps changing constantly <laughs> with each new country that I go to. Oh, my God. Okay, let's go to the next question. I'll come back to that one. Okay. Next question is three countries that you've not been to that's on your hit list. Three countries that I've not been to. Uh, there's a few very large countries that almost, it seems like almost every world traveler has been to that I have not been to. But I have to say, so I have not been to um, India. I oh. have not been to Nepal. 
and I have not been to uh, Thailand. So those those are three very very popular ones I've not been to. So all three of those. Okay, that's Nepal behind me. If you need a bit of a look, um, uh, that's, my, that's my photo. Yeah, from Poon Hill, Annapurna. Nice. You would, would recommend that, that hike. Um, okay, what about a favorite beach that you've been to? Oof. These are tough ones too, because I'll show you something. Um, well, I wish I could, I'll have to describe this, but so like I'm, I'm quite into beaches. And one of the things I'm also a collector, I collect things when I travel and yeah. into different types of souvenirs. And I have here, um, I collect sand from some of my favorite beaches. Oh, okay. So like, for example, I just, I've got here actually right behind me. These are some collections of sand from the last trip that I haven't categorized yet. So these are bags of sand from, you know, Brazil and Uruguay. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, look at that. So the, what we do is when we put them in these jars. I have some of them over here. So I've got all kinds of jars of sand from some of my favorite beaches. So I'm going to have to, as I think about this question, I'm stalling for time here. I'm going to have to look. Can you see these jars? Yeah. I'm going to have to look at some of these. Oh, Orkney Islands there. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'm going to have to look at this here. Let's see. One favorite beach. Okay, so I'm just going to choose my local beach, then St. Pete Beach, which is a wonderful one. Okay. And what about a favorite walk or hike that you've done? Oh, my gosh. These are extremely difficult questions. Yeah. Gosh, one <laughs> favorite hike. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to say just hiking anywhere in the Deschutes National Forest in Central Oregon, where I used to live. Okay, Oregon. Nice. Nice, nice. Okay, do you drink coffee? I do, but it's decaf, which I know is heresy Ooh, controversial. for people. But wow. I can't, I can't, um, I can't really drink coffee well, and then actually sleep. So I only drink coffee, um, regular caffeinated coffee, when I'm in other countries that do not have decaffeinated coffee. Okay. So the question here is, if you could pick one city in the world to drink coffee and watch the world go by, where would that be? Oh, I. You know what? I'm going to say this is recency bias, but I'm going to say Buenos Aires because we were just there. And the, the, they've got these wonderful cafes. They're turn of the century cafes. Like there was one um, in particular that we went to for breakfast a couple of mornings in a row. Of course, it helped. The prices were low, too. But the beautiful stained glass windows and the cafes there, the old ones, the 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 ones from the you know early or late, I'd say, 19th century, early 20th century are just so beautiful. I would say Buenos Aires. Not because of the quality of the coffee, but because I like the coffee houses there so much. That's the next question. The quality of coffee. What's your country's favorite coffee? Because, I mean, I, I'm spoiled here in the U.S. because sometimes you go to a great coffee producing country and then you go there and you're like, wait, how come I not drinking any good coffee? Or like Brazil, they produce a lot of yeah. good coffees, but you drink a lot of very cheap coffee when you go to Brazil. Like, <laughs> you know, there's good coffee there, but they're exporting most of it. So sometimes yeah. you go to a coffee shop there and they serve you like dishwater. Um, <laughs> so... I would say that, you know, the, one of the best coffees that I've had is, I think, is from Panama. So I'm going to say Panama. I'm going to give a oh, shout Panama. out to Panama. Wow. Boquete, the Boquete area. That's the first, I think, Panama coffee. Okay, that's great. And what about three cities, your favorites, or you would recommend people to go to? Oh, my gosh. I should have thought about these things in advance. This is so difficult. Three cities. Oh, my gosh. First of all, Istanbul is one of my favorite cities in the world. I love that place. Mm. Um, this is, again, recency bias, but I'm going to put Rio de Janeiro on the list because I think that Rio is in some ways an architecturally very ugly city. So usually I only would choose a place with architecturally beautiful city. Rio has very, for the most part, ugly looking buildings, but the geography of the city amazing. and the islands and the mountains and the greenery are so amazing. I have to put Rio on the list and because of the quality of the beaches there and the passion of the people 
and many other intangible factors. I'd have to throw Rio on that list also. And then I want to choose someplace that's not famous for the last one. And uh, for that, I'm going to go to a country that I lived in for two years that I'm very fond of, and that would be Ohrid, Macedonia, which is right on a lake, and it's a beautiful city in Macedonia. Okay, that's awesome. And talking about living in countries, if you could pick one other country to live in that you've not lived in before, where would you live? Mm, that's a good question, too. A country that I have not lived in before but would like to live there? Mm. I think I would choose Australia for that one because I think I've seen very, very little. Uh, there's many, many islands in the Pacific that I want to see. And I think that that would be a very, I love Australia, first of all, it's a great country, but I think it would also be a wonderful place to live because it would be a great base for visiting much of the Pacific of which I've visited um, very few of those islands so far. So I would choose Australia. Yeah, we did do that as a base and New Zealand's a good base as well to go to like Cook Islands and Fiji and Vanuatu. Yeah. Yeah. New, Cal New Caledonian, all that. Okay. And what about a favorite landmark can be nature or man-made? Well, I grew, I grew up um, so close to Niagara Falls and this was the, this was sort of the first tourist site that I ever been to in my life. And the one that I visited most frequently, I think I probably have been to Niagara Falls hundreds of times. So I'm saying Niagara Falls. Lovely. A few more questions and cuisine and food. So maybe I'll give you three countries here where you've been impressed by their cuisine and food. So my two favorite um, ethnic cuisines, and I have not been to, I have not even been to one of these countries, but I'm oh. so obsessed with its cuisine that I go to. So one of them is Korean. I've never been to Korea. Yeah. However, I love Korean food and I've been to like dozens, maybe hundreds of Korean restaurants around <laughs> the world, but none of them in Korea. But of course we've got millions of Korean people living oh, here yeah. in the US. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I believe it is what I've eaten is relatively uh, authentic. The second one is Turkish. I love, so my two favorite national cuisines are Korean and Turkish. Mm. Um, and the third one, I'm going to say Lebanon because I love Lebanese food too. That's amazing. Okay. What about a country that you have seen that's been the best value for money? Argentina. Oh, of course. Yeah, we talked about that one. Thanks to the peso devaluation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And have you thought about your three countries that you are picking in your top three? No, but let's think about it again right now. So, all right. So I'm, I'm putting Macedonia on my list. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm telling you that this is not a meritocratic list. Is that the right phrase that I'm looking yeah. for here? Um, I'm, this, is a, this is a personal list because mm -hmm. I lived in this country for two years and has a special place in my heart. And it's very underrated. And I think it's a very beautiful country in many ways, although its architecture is also mostly, mostly ugly, except in overhead. And it's beautiful medieval churches. But so I'm putting Macedonia on the list. The two other countries, um, and I'm sorry, you said these are my three favorite countries in the that world. You've that, to, I, that you've been that to. That you've been to. Yeah. I'm putting my own home country on the list because it's other weirdly, I think in many, many people have asked me, what is the most underrated country in the world? I will almost sometimes always say, believe it or not, the United States, because I find that amongst snobby sort of elite travelers, you could ask a million of them, what is their favorite country? And not a single damn one of them will say the USA. None wow. of them will, because it sounds like a very boring answer. Uh, but I think that this country has an incredibly varied landscape, every sort of climate and geography that you could possibly want. I mean, even if the 48 states uh, in the continental US did not exist, Hawaii and Alaska just on their own, they're so incredibly yeah. and remarkably interesting. <laughs> 
Um, I could go on for a while about this. I won't. So USA is number two, third country. I'm not going to list it. I'm going to break your rules. I'm sorry. For the third country, I'm just going to list a continent. My favorite continent is South America. And so for me, I love Ecuador. I love Brazil. Um, I love Colombia. I love Argentina. So all four of those countries to me, they're all very, very different, but I think of them, I think of them as a group. I I love traveling in South America. I love all four of those countries. So I'm just going to say South America generally. I'm sorry to break the rule. No, that's absolutely fine. USA is in my top five, and I'm not. I'm not ashamed to say it. That's awesome. Thank you. Because it's you. I've hit nail on the head. There's everything across the board. Any travel, I, it's all there. I find that I find that you know, people from other countries appreciate the United States more than Americans do, especially Americans who have not traveled a lot. I'll tell you another British person who actually surprisingly really likes the United States very much and who appreciates that is William Bakelin. Oh, I find okay. very interesting. And yeah. he's a very free, he's a frequent traveler and he knows his way around too. He, he loves the United States as well, surprisingly. Okay. Another, another British person who loves it, I think is Levison Wood. I think he likes your he book. He does, yeah. And he's now, I think he accepts some sort of camp in, a, in one of your deserts somewhere down south. So he, yeah, he, he he's a big fan. Terrific. I, he's one of my favorite travelers. He's amazing. He's a great writer too. Yeah, he's he's on my list to try and get on the, at one point. We'll see. We'll see. Did you did uh, you ask him? No, not yet. No, I'm building up to it. All right. Hit him up. Hit him up. <laughs> I need to pitch my uh, my idea. Okay, two more questions and then we'll finish. This penultimate question is do you have like a travel quote that you like that maybe represents why you traveled or what you think oh about travel? Oh my gosh, yes. I put all my favorite travel quotes in Mad Travelers. Um Okay, yeah. But I put all of them in there. So you, if you buy the book, you're gonna get tons of them. I'll tell you one right now. Uh, but I hope I'm not getting it incorrect. I believe Voltaire said, it is wherever my travels may lead, paradise is where I am. Okay, interesting. And the last question is, if someone's listening right now and is maybe not sure of why to travel or, or to make the leap and go to a country, what advice or wisdom would you pass on to them as to reasons why they should go? Why they should travel internationally or just yeah. generally? Generally. Perspective. Because I think that if you don't go anywhere, you have no basis of comparison to really understand what you see around you in your daily life. And I think it, I think it gives you a, a chance to step out of your comfort zone and to really see the world in, in a different way and to maybe see your own life and your own surroundings differently than you have before. I just want to say thanks for coming on, Dave. I really appreciate, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting time. me. It's been thanks a, for inviting me. I appreciate it. Really enjoyable chat. So yeah, thanks for coming on and I wish you all the best. Cheers. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website, jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels, and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.